2: This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Sina Rousseau. This episode is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Join us over the next several weeks as we talk with authors from our winter and spring issues, now available online. Our winter issue, 21.4, from which this episode is drawn features articles on mobility and immobility, food activism, and culinary translations. We're joined this week by Joel Rodriguez, an independent researcher based in Guwahati, which is the largest metropolis in northeastern India, Wikipedia tells me, and for those listeners who, like myself, may also need a Google map to situate it, lies slightly north of Bangladesh, south of Bhutan, and approximately 3,000 kilometers, just under 1,900 miles, northeast of Goa, which features as a place of both nostalgia and difficult memories in the article we're here to talk about. Joel holds an MA in Peace and Conflict Studies from the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Mumbai, and has a particular research focus on law, violence, food, and memory the last three of which certainly feature powerfully in the piece titled Classical Dishes, Taste and Violence, published in issue 21.4 and the subject of today's episode. Thank you, Joel, for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here, Dr. Russo. You're most welcome. Getting straight to your piece, which is evocative on so many levels related to the themes of mobility and immobility that run through this issue which I might add I had the privilege and pleasure of co-editing with my colleague on the editorial collective Daniel Bender and that I hope we can touch on. For listeners who have not had the opportunity to read it yet I wonder if we can set it up briefly. So You begin with a description of watching a so-called Elimination episode of MasterChef Australia, season 12, (laughs) I believe, (laughs) at your home in Guwahati, in which contestants are given the challenge of cooking a so-called classical dish in a limited space of time. The dish chosen by producers was described as a, quote, Goan dish, beef vindaloo with naan and rice, which for you triggered childhood memories. Now, before asking you to share with listeners what some of those memories were, and which makes up uh, a fair amount of your very moving piece, I just want to comment on how eloquently you set up both the intellectual framework of the piece or the article, as well as a sometimes difficult personal narrative that follows in the very next paragraph which begins with you explaining firstly that, and I quote, Naan is not a traditional pairing for anything going, And then, and this is possibly the so-called triggering point for your childhood memories, the qualifying instruction from one of the MasterChef judges, two of whom were Australian, one Scottish, I believe, um, to contestants to, quote, not stray from the path of being classic, just make it exactly how it was intended to be made and make it perfectly. So here is, before um, handing uh, or asking you to comment, here is firstly the classic, if I may, challenge that food studies scholars will be familiar with in in disciplines ranging from anthropology to history to media, the latter being my own field, which is the all too common misrepresentation of a cultural food or a practice or a belief from a place of non-authority, which may then easily persist in popular memory because of the economics of attention. In this case, a very popular TV cooking show that garners many eyeballs. And secondly, your sort of opening scene sets up the complications of a word like classical, revered in contexts like mastering Escoffier's sources, but also r- routinely problematized by almost any example outside of that kind of classical tradition, which recognizes and ideally celebrates the role of improvisation, innovation, and the proverbial melting pot of globalization, which has given us many uh, dishes that some of our ancestors around the world would probably not recognize as food to use a provocative phrase from michael polan so with apologies for the long-winded getting to my question it is that you write uh, you write beautifully about both of these subjects and the violence inherent in each as both a scholar and a son would you care to give listeners a little more insight into your unique perspective on either or both of these as related in the article or maybe start with what did the instruction to stay classical evoke
3: for you? As a son, I think uh, for me, writing uh, about this was also to pay a homage to my mother and uh, which stemmed from the uh, definition of how classical instruction was given, that you cannot stray from that. And that, uh, that evoked in me the thoughts that, was my mother really being very... Uh, very disciplined and devoted to reproducing the classical in her everyday cooking. Uh, because for us, uh, Bindalo something is very central to our cooking. Uh, in my household, it, it, we would have it at least once a month or so. Uh, and on Sundays, which was a special occasion. Uh, so what really got to me was... Uh, when and how, if she was allowed to uh, divert or digress from uh, what this notion of being classical. And it has to be exactly how it was. And for me, that was rooted in the memories of violence, of it had to be done exactly the way my father wanted it to be. And uh, while you might be eliminated from uh, uh from a show with a huge cash prize for diverting or digressing from that classical. For us, it was violence, a violence that we had to live with, a violence that we could not fight against. Uh, so that was really triggering for me of as a son to write about that, of uh, this classical uh, or the tradition was too heavy a burden in the everyday life for us as a scholar i wanted to uh, i wanted to look at cooking uh, in a way that it's not restricted only in the kitchen of the act of cooking per se uh, washing vegetables cleaning them meat chopping them off uh, putting it in the pot and, and the various steps involved uh, but from uh, bringing it right from sourcing off of those ingredients. And as I kept reflecting, I realized every step of it was so loaded uh, as a childhood experience for us, uh, for my mother, of how going and getting the ingredients, which is critical to preparing the dish as my father wanted it to be, uh, itself was... An act of transgression, at the same time, uh, an essential act to prepare the uh, prepare the recipe to prepare the food. So, in a way, uh, the urban setting in the urban setting that we lived in, the sourcing of ingredients was very crucial. The prepping work, the uh, uh, the prepping work, and putting it all together, and my mother did all of them single-handedly, and. In the restaurant setting, we have people who hold different positions uh, uh, and different titles. And there's different space scales for, say, a commie chef or sous chef. But at my home, uh, my mother did all of them together and simultaneously. And there was somehow a complete lack of appreciation for what she did single-handedly. So for me, it was the tension uh, between, of course, as, uh, as a scholar, as well as a son, of how do I put it together, at the same time, uh, celebrate the spirit that my mother is still alive, I'm still alive, and we both have learned to appreciate food rather differently compared to how how it was in the past. So yeah. That was the reason why I wrote it. Also, uh, as a scholar, I wanted, uh, uh, I have a master's in peace and conflict studies and I work on memory and violence. And I wanted to know that when we speak to our respondents, when we speak to our interlocutor about their memories of violence, what does it evoke in them? And what do we risk by reminding them of the past which is not so pleasant so how far can we push ourselves and uh, be a little more sensitive and when we do the same to others on the field so that was the reason why i wrote this article
2: absolutely i i can see that it um, must have been well both for your the personal narrative that you describe but also the field work that you describe as a scholar as an academic um, that there are revisiting memories of violence is risky in various ways, and uh, it takes bravery and a, a delicate um, appreciation of those sorts of tensions. But um, if I may move on to well, not move on. We, we are. Um, you were born in. Dada, in central Bombay, which is now Mumbai. Um, And at the age of three, your family moved to Versailles Road, which you describe in the piece as, quote, a nascent, eerily modern town, end quote, presumably what listeners would recognize as a suburb of a city. Um, Is it correct then to summarize that the goer of your mother's childhood that you write about uh, and and of your mother's cooking features in your life chiefly as a result of her stories and and of her cooking, rather than your personal experience of Goa. So you have this very sort of visceral sense of and and I suppose uh, you feel you feel strongly about Goa. Clearly, where when it was this one recipe that appeared on MasterChef that evoked something that was very potent for you
3: as a child we did go to goa almost on an annual basis uh, so as a kid uh, studying in school uh, we used to have a summer vacation in april and may and every year we it was almost a ritual that we went to goa <laughs> to visit my mother's uh, family because my entire mother's family lives in Goa and my entire father's family lives in Bombay. So <laughs> there was this bridging that would happen uh, once a year where we would pack everything and go to Goa. But this Goa of my childhood was very different from the Goa that my friends perceived Goa to be. Uh, because in in the popular imaginary, even uh, today, Goa is a place of uh, beach, sand, uh, seafood, and alcohol. And that was not the Goa that I grew up in, or I visited. every. My village in Goa was quite far from uh, from the beach. And when we went to Goa, also we visited the beach only like, say, twice or thrice in the entire holiday season. Uh, so I grew up uh, I, my mother's family grew up in a village very far from the beach uh, and yeah, so I do have memories of Goa and it's tragically blissful that uh, I grew, uh, in my childhood, uh, my mother's house was exactly the same uh, as she grew up in so it was very basic, the floor was plastered with uh, cow dung once a year. Uh, the walls was very basic. There was only one uh, bulb in the entire house that I remembered. And we all sat around that bulb while eating. And cooking was done in the kitchen with kerosene lamp and the little rays, small little rays from the dining room to the kitchen. So uh, that was the Goa that I, I visited in my childhood. Uh, there were a few things that you could not recreate in Bombay in regard to food. Like Vivek Menezes writes, writes this amazing article for Wittels on Poi, the Goan bread. And we could not get that bread in Bombay, of course. Every morning, uh, the bread guy would come in a cycle with a wicker basket which had different kinds of bread. Uh, he would honk uh, and we would wake up with that honk and we would uh, we would uh, gather around, buy our bread and eat that bread as breakfast, dipping it in tea. We had a pickle which was made out of mussels and that kind of mussels we would not get in Bombay. So Uh, this ritual of going to Goa every year was also bringing back from Goa these certain things that we would not get. Uh, We would buy packets and packets of cashew nuts. We would have mussel pickles. We We would have different kinds of people. We would get a crate of mangoes, which was, of course, available in Bombay. But my mother wanted to have just that particular kind of mango that she was convinced you get only in Goa. And even the jackfruit, you would bring a huge jackfruit, which would be like quite a trouble to carry. But my mother would just say that I will carry everything. Just let me bring home whatever I want to bring. So that's the are, that I grew up with.
2: Those are um, some wonderfully evocative memories. Uh, thank you for those. and And I'm sure that listeners around the world can relate on some level to you know, living somewhere where they have things that they miss from their childhoods and when they do, when they are able to visit those places, they stock up, you know, when I was a child growing up in Swaziland, now called Eswatini, and we would visit Denmark, where I am originally from, um, Mm -hmm. I would stuff my suitcase with salted licorice, which was the one thing I couldn't find in <laughs> Southern Africa. And then I would subject all my friends to tasting it and they all hated yeah. it. But it was, it was something that was very, it was very special to me. And I'm sure um, probably everyone has got some version of that sort of story.
3: But, yeah, but what we, you did, had this, we had this Goan sausages, which you would proudly say that this is the best of all the different sausages you'll get in Goa. So you need to taste it.
2: Because it just has more
3: spices and more flavors.
2: Of course, of course. You know, there's a lot of, I mean, it's not just nationalism or uh, a sense of place connected to food, but it's food of one's memory that one cannot, Mm. that one finds difficult to recreate. Yes. And this this, um, links very nicely to the next point that I was going to make, which is that in your piece you write that, quote, Although we were hundreds of kilometers north of Goa, the marine life in Versailles Road was similar, meaning there were fewer reasons for Goan families living in Bombay and its outskirts to change their eating habits, end quote. Which you've touched on already, um, but I think it's an interesting or rather a key reminder of the importance of the availability of ingredients to continue Culinary habits, I should say, maybe comforting culinary habits, even if one is displaced um, or needs to move from a familiar place. I was thinking when rereading your piece of the example, by contrast of, for example, Japanese immigrants uh, who found themselves in Brazil in the during the first half of the 20th century, who were forced to adapt to un- very unfamiliar ingredients, which would in turn generate a whole new so-called hybrid cuisine consisting of both Japanese and Brazilian elements as more and more Japanese things became available um, due to you know, the movement of goods and, and so on. And while the example of your family's move or your mother's distance from her own Goan roots is of course not as dramatic as a move from Japan to Brazil, that Mm -hmm. seemingly small detail that you write about of being able to source familiar seafood really highlights how that kind of access can create a sense of comfort. But still you write that for your mother, it was the spice markets of Dadar, where you were born, uh, which held a special nostalgia and her reasons for visiting that was perhaps as much in the hope of finding an old friend or hearing her mother tongue as in the spices that she clearly cherished. So she was looking for more than, there was something more than just the the ingredient that she was looking for, that she was,
3: uh, that she went to try to find. Would you agree? Yeah, but- for a long period as a kid, I would always ask my mother, why are we going to Dadar all the time? I mean, it was once a year though, but for me it was, why do we have to go there? By then, we already used to get uh, powdered spices uh, in packets uh, all across Vasai. Mm-hmm. And, and if you needed whole spices, you could find it in uh, shops in small quantity though, but you can always find it. So. I never understood why she used to go there. And she would just say that, no, I'm going. You want to come, you come. You don't want to come, it's okay, don't come. And uh, yeah, f- traveling in the local suburban seemed quite hectic anyway. But I would just tag along because as a kid, uh, what a good opportunity to just travel the world in the trains and go from one end to another end.
2: Absolutely. What a sense of wonder you describe.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So I would just go, but I would find it uh, quite a stupid exercise to do once a year. Uh, But as I grew older and I kept seeing it, I think as uh, her friends kind of, I thought we were just spontaneously bumping into her friends in those markets or when we would go to, the old, her old locality, I, w- I thought it was just spontaneous or maybe even quite obvious that we've come this far, we can take a few steps and just uh, go a li- take a little diversion and see who we meet. Uh, but later I realized as she kept finding someone or the other who had left that space, uh, that is when I realized that she she was not just looking out for spices, she just year, she was yearning for something more, and to yearn to to that yearning to hear a language to find people Absolutely. that she knew yeah. for so many years. I think that was very significant, and I could see her uh, as years would pass by that she would always go looking out. Uh, for them. And in those days, we didn't have mobile phones. So we would just go to Goa once a year. Uh, So to hear someone speak in our mother tongue uh, was something very important for her. And in our neighborhood, there there were people who were speaking in mother tongue. So even to hear the sound of her language, we had to go there. Uh, When we would write letters to Goa, it would be she would dictate it in English and we would write it in English. And the response would also come back in English because my cousins were translating the English to Konkani and they were writing it back, translating that Konkani to English. And we were just, wow. uh, my father would never allow us to speak Konkani at home. Uh, Such an an
2: interesting and uh, important point you make about a simple thing that we take for granted these days, like mobile phones and and the importance of uh, hearing a native or mother tongue. But uh, we're going to take a short break now and we'll be back in a moment with Joel Rodriguez.
1: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
2: And we're back. This is Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sina Rousseau, talking with Joel Rodriguez about his article Classical Dishes, Taste and Violence, available in issue 21.4 of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, published by the University of California Press. So we were speaking briefly before the break about uh, your mother's trips to the spice market that that were not only for spices, but also yearning for a sound of a mother tongue or bumping into an old friend. And here I want to very briefly, but not to dwell too much on this, uh, the more upsetting part of your article. It is in the title of your piece, um, to return to the word violence, where you still poignantly state that, quote, through my mother's yearnings and my father's abuses, I learned the value of spices, end quote. So that market was, as I think you were um, describing very well, it was a place to, in your words, to breathe, even as those same spices evoked what would come to be baseless suspicions of infidelity from your father, thanks to gossip about what took place there. So spices then also took on... A multi-layered meaning for, I suppose, both for your mother and for you, in re- as a child, and even reflecting on them, writing this article, um, as something that expresses love, nostalgia, and fear. Would would you uh, would you agree with that?
3: Yeah, uh, I completely agree. But coming to this realization was a very difficult experience for me while writing the essay. Uh, Throughout the essay, uh, I wrote the essay uh, and it it was quite dramatic just writing them and remembering those memories. As days would pass, more and more details of, of the memory would become more vivid But this is, uh, and I would uh, continuously speak to my mother over the phone and ask her and discuss things with her and uh, see what does she remember and how do I remember. Uh, But this was the only section that I could not speak to her about. I could, I didn't want to. I didn't want to remind her that this happened. For me, it is very vivid because. Uh, When she came back home that evening uh, and she was constantly crying and cooking and when when we were lying on the bed and she finally managed to tell me what really happened, she started off by saying that I wish I had a daughter. And that is how the conversation began. It was the day that she really long and yearned that i wish i had a daughter to whom i could speak about all these things and persi- uh, possibly also to warn her about all these things for the future so
2: well i'm, I'm sorry that must be a difficult memory for you um yes. but i but i'm glad for your mother that that she has a son who has written so beautifully about this and um and it I have no doubt that it was a difficult piece to write it can be a difficult one to read at times but mm-hmm. just to um, as we get to a a happier conclusion you do describe a turning point for both yourself and your mother a liberation of sorts a liberation is the word that you use and the final section of the piece is both hopeful and optimistic can you perhaps tell readers about how you have clearly found a more joyful way to channel history and nostalgia through cooking and spices.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I I realized as I moved away from this childhood of mine and I started living alone, that these dichotomies don't need to exist, that domestic cooking is done by women, the professional cooking is done by men. It's anyone can do whatever they want to do and everyone should do all forms of cooking and all steps involved in cooking. And in that process of learning to live life, I think I found, I discovered the joy of cooking, because as I mentioned in the article, I I was living with people who were cooking for living as well as cooking uh, as a means to solidarity of coming together, And recreating uh, memories and remembering these memories of the past uh, centered on food. So food became a very powerful tool to bring people together. And in that process, I rediscovered that uh, the violence that was rooted in the food that I ate in my childhood is not the norm. It's not how everyday life uh, need to be. It can be different. It it can be centered on love, uh, also. Uh, so every time now I go to visit my friends in Northeast India, I I carry in my bag uh, a packet of spices, uh, uh, and just like a backup kind of a thing. Uh, where if I get time and I try to make time, I create. A, I cook for. The family that I'm living with, and in that process, it it just it is just uh, a wonderful experience that I keep uh, creating. We all enjoy because the cooking and eating in Northeast India is, is poles apart from the cooking and eating in say Goa and Bombay. So this uh, this experimenting this uh, this new recipes that we are creating because I can't create exactly as I would create in Bombay or say in Goa uh, because uh, the people here are not used to that kind of uh, flavor palette. and So you improv- improvise
2: according to what's available. Yes, and the
3: family to that the, I'm living with.
2: And the family, which is a wonderful gift. Mm-hmm. And, yes. and uh, I suppose if they wanted to have naan with the beef vindaloo, you wouldn't disallow it? No.
3: <laughs> I would say, please go ahead and do whatever, because I'm experimenting in my own ways. So I think the moment we let go of these rigid dis- disciplines and, and these distinctions, I think we would learn to celebrate with much better...
2: That is a, a lovely note to conclude on and that and that your article also concludes on. It is really a, a joyous and optimistic celebration of the sort of innovation and um, improvisation that, let's face it, most people around the world don't have a choice but to do, yeah. uh, especially... If they are displaced, and we're now talking at a time where many people are being displaced, yes. certainly uh, against their will and um, and they will have to make do with what they can find. And that is a one form of resilience that we can celebrate when we can.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I wonder um, just before we round off, if there was anything else that you would like to share with listeners, about your experience either of writing the piece or um, researching the piece?
3: Yes, I it was the first time I was writing an article on food and uh, I, I couldn't tell people that I'm going to send it to Gastronomica. I think people uh, think I'm pushing it too far by sending uh, the essay to the best <laughs> known food <sighs> journal in the world. But I think I took Thank that very leap much. of faith and uh, I had an amazing mentorship that I went through, through, uh, through the course of finalizing the article. Uh, the editorial support was wonderful. The mentoring I received was very sensitive. I was very scared that during the peer review process, uh, people might just attack the article for so many reasons and, uh, I was very scared. I was already vulnerable while writing the article. And I thought of course. I would be even further vulnerable if someone is just going to say that it's not written in a particular style, in a particular form. It has to be this and that. Uh, but the mentoring process was very sensitive to each sentence and each word that I had written. So it was the minute detailing that I received through the process i am very grateful for that i think that was as an as a young scholar as a young writer i think it makes a world of difference when uh, the editors are very sensitive to what you've written and how you've written so i'm quite grateful for that and i think uh, people should take the leap of faith and uh, consider writing for gastronomica <laughs>
2: Well on behalf of the editorial collective uh, I am delighted that you had such a positive experience and I must assure listeners that we have not paid Joel to say such lovely things about the process of getting his of getting his uh, article to publication but that is exactly the sort of uh, experience that we aim to provide and we encourage um we encourage young, young scholars and we hope that you will continue uh, writing about food or other things and feel less intimidated by the process because there are many good stories uh, and studies to be told and many people are intimidated by the whole process of being published in a journal but uh, it needn't be that way and i will personally thank you for the honor of being able to publish your piece in the issue that i co-edited so thank you very much for
3: that joel thank you to you too
2: (laughs) so i'm going to thank our listeners for joining us today listeners can read joel rodriguez's piece classical dishes taste and violence in gastronomica the journal for food studies volume 21.4 For more details and further reading, visit gastronomica.org. Join us next week as Gastronomica returns for a segment called What to Read Now in the World of Food Studies. Thank you very much.